You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Pakira Maimer, and this is Working Scientist, a nature careers podcast. This is the third episode in a six-part series about the secrets of good science communication. I talk to those who are great at it, those who hire people who are great at it, and people who have switched careers or left academic research to be part of it. My guests in this episode started as PhD researchers, science students, or engineers, and somehow ended up in newsrooms. They now cover space, biology, technology, and climate change, run podcasts or radio shows, or edit sections in science magazines. They've got some advice for you if you are thinking of making the leap to journalism or science communication. What's the journey like? What are some of the roadblocks? And what do you need to know before you wade in? Before we get down to business, I have a personal confession to make. I was once a physics student who early on got off the path and sank my teeth into journalism. So I speak from experience when I say it can be challenging to switch lanes, more so I can imagine if you're halfway through an established career. Sometimes the first barrier you meet when you make big decisions like these is your own family. Yeah, well, that's uh, it's funny that you should mention parents there because, funny enough, I think that probably was the biggest challenge, frankly. I mean, I was fine with the transfer and the lack of relative money and the insecurity and the randomness that came uh, when I transferred from a reasonably safe and hard-fought-for career in engineering into something much uncertain and media-related. Uh, but my parents freaked out. Maybe that's putting it a bit strongly. But they, they, did, they questioned me quite forensically about why on earth uh, their wonderful, bright engineering son would possibly want to go and get his hands dirty with a, some kind of master's course in communication and then, worst of all, just try and busk it in the land of radio. That was Gareth Mitchell. Gareth is a UK science and technology reporter, a lecturer in science communication at Imperial College London, and the presenter of BBC Digital Planet, a BBC radio show about, you guessed it, technology. He also writes for the monthly BBC Science Focus magazine, and hosts his podcast. Gareth started at the BBC in the mid-1990s, not as a journalist, but as an engineer. When he moved into broadcasting, his parents were a little less enthusiastic than he was. So I think, to be honest, it was that was the biggest challenge, really. I think in persuading my parents that I wasn't quite as mad as I looked, it was maybe a useful exercise to go through because it was a means of, I suppose, persuading, if not reassuring myself, that I definitely was doing the right thing. U.S. journalist and editor Azeen Qureshi's experience was similar. 
except that her parents' fears stemmed from a different experience. My parents are both immigrants. Um, they came from Iran around the time of the, the revolution there. Um, very strongly feel that they came here to make a better life for their kids. And like, you know, journalism plays a very different role there. Um, and it's, there's, you know, state media, for example. Like it's, it's, a, it's a very different environment. Um, and it's not a job that they thought of as being easy or safe or secure or in some ways prestigious, you know, like they, especially my dad, I think really wanted me to go become a doctor. I think that's a very common thing with immigrant parents. Um, when, when he realized that wasn't going to happen, he was like, okay, well go become a scientist. And then when I did this, you know, sharp, sharp left turn, I think he was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Azine, who was then a fruit fly researcher, managed to convince her parents that journalism is not as dangerous as they think, at least not in the way that it might be in her home country, at least not the brand of journalism she was into. In 2012, a presidential election year in the U.S., she gave up her science career. Her previous work involved slicing fruit fly brains under a microscope and logging hours of fly sex, often while listening to the science show Radiolab. Research is tough, And it never gripped me the way that reading a feature story on someone else's research would grip me, you know? Um, So I ended up, I I was living in, obviously, at Berkeley at the time in San Francisco. I was in San Francisco, actually. Um, There aren't that many magazines out there, um, especially science magazines. It's basically Wired and and, um, Mother Jones are like the two big ones. And Mother Jones has this excellent internship um, program that's uh, potentially a year-long Um, that is very focused on investigative journalism and on fact-checking. And I'd known people who had done it before um, who had said that it was sort of the most rigorous, best training you could get um, in a way as an intern where you're not going to be, you're not going to really be blogging, you're not going to really be fetching coffee, you're really going to be like nose to the grindstone doing the tough work of fact-checking day in and day out which to be honest, didn't sound super fun, <laughs> but was very appealing in that I thought I could learn how to do this job um, in a more serious way than, than I had been doing or, or had an idea of it before. I sort of had this whiplash moment where I went from being in the lab to being um, an intern at a political magazine in a presidential election year where suddenly I was doing fact-checking on on these extremely legally sensitive investigations. Um, and, and sometimes that felt similar to science. Like, it's hard. We had to trace everything back to primary sources, documentation, um, interviews, et cetera. And it was tough work. It made me realize, like, how hard it really is to put together real journalistic work. Um, on the side, I also tried to do some blogging um, to write like small stories for their website. And it was also very hard for me um, because it was the first time, you know, I was at a general interest publication. It's not even a general interest publication. It's it's a politic. It's very politically focused. Um, and the I had so many pitches rejected. It was a really tough first couple months trying to figure out how to land pitches um, that they would actually be interested in. And then ultimately, it actually ended up being a really great exercise for me um, because it made me have to turn on the part of my brain that thinks of science stories that maybe regular, you know, readers would not think of as a science story. That stories that are about the world around us, stories that are about politics, stories that are about medicine, stories that are about, you know, 
patents that just sort of show you how much science is actually woven into the world around us, that it's not this thing that's sort of set aside um, or, you know, up on an ivory tower. Um, so it was, it was a really good challenge for me in that way. How important is that kind of training to launching a career in science journalism or communication? I'm sure a lot of people are wondering about this. Do you have to have a leg in graduate school or, say, an internship to be able to start pitching stories or to understand how the media machine works? Isn't science knowledge enough to get some people started in this field? You can know a ton about how something like a neuron works. but there are, And there are many scientists who I've spoken to who absolutely have that gift of being able to explain that in ways that make other people understand. And to me, that's sort of what our jobs, that's, that's certainly a huge part of what our jobs as science journalists are. We need to be able to not only understand the concept, but be able to translate it. It's also knowing how to find a story. Part of what I was trying to describe with that experience when I was interning was was sort of undoing the part of my brain that just wanted to explain science to people um, to to better understand like what what makes a, a story that that people want to read. I should say I also did um, attend a science communication grad school program um, for one year um, at Imperial College in London um, and. The program, I think the the best thing I got out of that program was um, the first third or the first half or something of the program was was basically just trying to undo everyone's scientist brain. You know, lots of people have thoughts about whether going to journalism school or going to a program like this is is worth it. To me, like that part of it was incredibly worth it. I had never heard of, you know, they they taught like history of science and sociology of science. That I didn't even know that there were these whole disciplines of um, scholars who look at how science is made and think about how its history has shaped it and question, you know, the idea that it's just um, straight linear progress and um, question that science has always been for good. Also, having that experience, that step back to get that education was really important for me. Azine, you're now a science editor at BuzzFeed. That means you commission work too. Where do you find your ideas? And how can one develop a good hunch for stories? Our science desk here at BuzzFeed was was sort of set up with a very clear mandate. And we don't, we very rarely cover single studies. We very rarely do profiles. We very rarely, we don't take PR pitches. Um, we don't really do sort of gee whiz science stories that often. Um, and so that sort of narrows all of those like, don't for us sort of help to narrow down what what makes a good story for us. Um, some of my favorite stories that I've written, a story about um, basically the fight between the medical establishment and activists um, over intersex babies. So these are babies who are born, there's a, there's a, it's a very broad definition, but um, who are somewhere along the spectrum biologically uh, between, um, you know, what we call male and female. And um, the medical paradigm in the U.S. for a very long time and, and elsewhere actually has been to when these infants are born, um, if they have um, genitalia that is, again, along this spectrum, to they, they would be surgically modified at, as infants to more closely resemble either a boy or a girl. Um, and 
you know, these babies had grown up. And in the 90s, there was this huge resurgence in in activism um, of intersex adults who were saying, who found out what had happened to them. Often they had found out later in life. Um, Some of whom had actually switched the, from the gender that they had been assigned um, in the operating room to a, their whatever their true gender um, felt to them. I wrote this story, I think it was 2015, um, as conversations around gender were, were really coming up more um, in popular culture. There was, you know, the rise of um, transgender celebrities, Caitlyn Jenner, um, I think came out that year. Um, there was just a big conversation happening around what gender gender is and what biological sex is a separate conversation from that, but they're very closely linked. Um, and I found out about this lawsuit that was happening that was supposed to be potentially was going to be this landmark lawsuit that would finally be brought against the medical establishment to stop this practice. It's actually a much more complicated story than that. The back and forth between the the medical establishment and the activists has actually gotten much more complex since the '90s when it was was originally brought up, and that's because our understandings of of sex and gender have really moved on since then. And and the medical establishment has changed, but have they changed enough? So it was just this story where the there was a very compelling central story, which was the story of of the baby and the parents who were suing. Um, and I could use them as the vehicle to take us through a story about all of this history um, between uh, describing the, the the fight between um, doctors and and activists, and also to talk about like what what we now and in, in, then it was the year 2015 think about things like sex and gender. So it to me often things that are playing out in the popular culture. I think too often people think that's like a completely separate thing from science. Well, it's not. Um, it's everything is way more connected than than it seems and something like that. That story to me was very interesting to report and then to write um, because it really touched on many things at once. Um, and I think that is for me the ideal story um, is is ones like that. Having a background in science that helps you understand how to read scientific papers and appreciate the vastness and complexity of a field like science is certainly useful. But is it essential? Gareth of the BBC and Imperial College has something to say about that. Yeah, well, I think really just a good journalist is a good journalist, whether they have a science background or not. And just that critical faculty that any journalist has. The ability not necessarily to know the answer, but at least to know the right question. You know, I think the non-specialist as well as the specialist can do that if they're bright enough and dedicated enough and devoted enough to researching their story. Having said that, of course, there are benefits to people with science backgrounds from going into science journalism. And the benefits, I suppose, are quite obvious in many ways that you just know a bit more of science, so you might know a little bit more about the subject. But as we all know, many science specialist journalists report on stories outside their specialism. So I'm, well, I'm not really a scientist, really. I'm an engineer. and We could have a long time discussing the difference, but let's just assume I'm not quite a scientist, but I nearly am. I, I spend a lot of time reporting on subject matters that are way outside my engineering or maybe physical sciences background. But nonetheless, it is just that appreciation, I suppose, of what science is, how problematic science is, 
how socially constructed, to use that term, science is. In other words, it is about people and it's about institutions and it's about interactions and it's partly political and it's agenda driven and those kinds of things. I think it's just understanding something about the construction of the scientific process and the the way that science happens and works and the kinds of people that science are that does give you the edge as a science journalist if you have a science background. Many motivational posts on the internet urge us to drop everything and pursue our passions. If your passion is for translating science or weaving interesting narratives around it, that's not exactly bad advice. But having a plan and a financial buffer before you take the plunge is equally important, especially if the end goal is not a staff job, but to be your own boss and maybe freelance for several publications or write an idea for a book or launch your own show. Not everyone starts at school or gets into an expensive graduate program to be able to write or podcast or vlog. Gareth chimes in. Yeah, so if you're a scientist, you're an academic and you want to move over into podcasting or other forms of communication, there are, I suppose the first thing to say is don't be too afraid of it. Don't think, oh, I can't do this. It's completely alien to me. Or if I do do this, it will go horribly wrong. Or my peers or my supervisor or the professor will think less of me. So I think get over that personal barrier if there is one first. And then I think the next stage is, of course, there are so many resources online, so many people are friendly. There are lots of places to find out about things and to get advice. But I think the starting point is before you even think about, like, how do I communicate? What do I communicate? Do I want to be a podcaster? Do I want to be a blogger, a vlogger, a YouTuber? whatever? I think before you do any of that, maybe just ask yourself why you want to do it. Why does it matter to you? And it's okay, by the way, to say, because it's cool. I'll just enjoy it. It'll make me feel happy. It'll make me feel like a good person. But maybe you have a deeper reason that it's about that you think that your particular subject area or discipline is insufficiently represented in the wider media. It might be that. Or maybe it's overrepresented and misrepresented in the media. So have an idea of why you want to do it. Then tell yourself you absolutely can do it. And then think about the mode. In other words, is it going to be a podcast? Are you the kind of person who might be better going around schools and giving talks to school children? Or are you more of a science festival kind of person who wants to go and do some stand-up comedy at a science festival or in your local comedy club? So think about whether you like being on stage, whether you like the sound of your own voice, or most people hate, me included, believe it or not, the sound of our own voices. Uh, so you might not like the sound of your own voice, but if you think that you could just talk yourself into podcasting, maybe that's for you as well. So I think really the sequence is ask yourself, first of all, why. That's the most important reason. And once you know why you want to do it, most other solutions will follow. And what will come with that is then through which mode, which kind of media you're going to communicate and then you work out what your message is and put it out there and enjoy it and make the world a better place as you go along. And yes, I've hugely oversimplified it, but welcome to the media. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
You're listening to Working Scientist. My next guest started studying biology and psychology before getting lured into science writing through courses in English literature and creative writing back in college. He's about to publish a book about what he terms the co-evolution of Earth. He tells me all about it and his journey in the next segment. Ferris Jaber has written for the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, the U.S. Outdoor Magazine Outside, and Hakai, an online title covering coastal science and ecology. Some of his work has been included in the best American science and nature writing anthologies. I asked Ferris about his next book. The book grew out of several years worth of noticing patterns and trends in some of the studies I was looking at. I kept seeing studies that were about the power of living creatures to change the planet as a whole. So not just to transform their local environments, but to change the atmosphere, the continents, the ocean. And these studies were coming from many different fields of science, and I didn't really see anybody talking about them cohesively, but to me, they seemed to be very connected. Um, so that's, you know, for years, I was kind of just adding these studies and bits and pieces of information into files on my computer. And I started thinking about it more holistically with the framework of Earth system science. And this idea that biology and geology have changed each other throughout the planet's history, that it's not just that living organisms are shaped by their environments, but they're also actively sculpting their environments at the same time. And they do this on a planetary scale. And that's been really important for the way the planet itself has evolved and for these really interesting feedback mechanisms um, that allow the planet to regulate, in some cases, its temperature and climate. And to me, that seems so relevant right now because of climate change, because we are kind of the ultimate example of a living creature altering the planet as a whole. Um, and so I, I started to think about a book that could bring all of that together. Like Azine's model of an ideal story, Ferris's book blends narratives from across several disciplines. It touches on something that's relevant to people's everyday lives and invites them to reflect more deeply on the world around them. The story behind it seems to strike a balance between details and the big picture. I've noticed that story ideas come from a lot of different places. You know, first of all, I think a lot of science writers and science reporters spend a lot of time reading new studies that, you know, that seems to be the bread and butter of science news journalism is, you know, what are the latest studies saying? And, and those can be great for um, individual news stories, but also as a source for noticing trends and larger patterns, because you can start to see over months to years that there's a lot of individual studies that are saying the same thing or, the, or they're starting to come together in some way. But story ideas can also come from a lot of other places. They can come from conversations. Um, I remember I, I, a few years ago, I wrote a piece for Scientific American that was all about the neuroscience and psychology of reading on paper versus reading on screens. And that really emerged from conversations with family and friends because it was just something that we were kind of wondering about in our everyday life. And I couldn't really find anyone who had sort of taken um, a, a really comprehensive look at what the science had to say about that. Um, and then I think as my career kind of progressed and, you know, I was writing longer pieces, narrative and character became a lot more important, especially for the kind of features I write for the New York Times Magazine. It's really crucial to have a central character that is compelling and engaging around which one can construct a, a narrative. Um, for example, I wrote a piece about... Um, an ethnobotanist, so this is somebody who studies 
indigenous knowledge of plants and how people use plants in different ways. And she in particular was interested in um, plants ability to help with the antibiotic resistance crisis. So I was, I just started with a general interest in ethnobotany. Like I knew this was a field. I thought it was really intriguing. I wanted to find a way to write about it, but I needed something. I needed a central character and I needed an issue that was immediate and relevant and timely. And so when I found this particular scientist um, who connected ethnobotany to the antibiotic resistance crisis and who had a really interesting and compelling personal story because she herself almost died from a bacterial infection and she grew up in rural Florida, you know, spending a lot of time outdoors around plants, it all kind of came together really nicely. Um, and, and, and that makes for a much better read, I think, if, if you have that character and that narrative that you can kind of sew, stitch together with the science. So there's often, um, you know, two or three stories and timelines that you're weaving together. There might be the character's personal narrative, the sort of history of an idea, and then the science itself, you know, the exposition. And you're, you're kind of bringing all those things together into a, a complete tapestry. How often do the worlds of arts and science collide in the field of science communication? More often than you might think of the number of scientists and creatives who straddle both worlds is anything to tell by. If you've enjoyed our discussion today, make sure to tune in next week wherever you listen to podcasts. In the next episode of Working Scientist, I talk to researchers and science communicators who have remarkably combined filmmaking, fiction, art, and even comedy with science storytelling. And spoiler alert, they do it brilliantly. Until then, I'm Pakina Maimer. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.